Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. Uh, last night, I was sitting there in a predicament. I had two guests. I was at a party. I knew I might be a little hungover. So thank God my first guest was at 12. And Amanda was at 1.30. And I said, you know what? I always interview three people. Even though I don't need three guests, I do it because I love putting them on my website. And I met this guy at Max Wasser's party. And uh, when he walked in the party, I could tell he had shit going on. And if you're not from Hollywood, here's what you don't understand. Some people walk into a party and they sit there like, hey, I own this party. Some people walk into a party and they have they have a, a certain air of confidence where they, they know they've done shit. And this was one of those guys. As soon as he walked in, I said, you know what? This, this guy's got stuff going on. He's not, he's not one of these uh, old rockers. He's not one some creepy actor. He's got stuff going on. And, and as we talked, he did. And I guess it's Nicholas Tanner. How you doing, Nick? So, so last night you, you did walk in. I, I knew you were you were you had it going on. I mean, do you hear that a lot? Do you hear when you walk into a party, you, you have a certain air, or is it just because you, you you just had a documentary that did so well? I mean, how do you perceive yourself when you walk into a party? Well, I think I'm I'm pretty excited to tell people you know what what I do have going on. I mean, it's it, it, both these projects took me a while to to get to this point. And it just happens to be um, in an era where it's kind of challenging to get music and films made and done and financed. I have two of them in one year being released. So that, that definitely gives me excitement and enthusiasm and something to share. Well, we were, today we're going to do a reverse interview. I usually, I, I usually talk about how you got to a certain point. But I want you to talk about your projects, both of them, because they're, they're so different. And one's off a web series. And, and, and they're, they're just – you cannot – understand the, the difference, the spectrum of the differences. I want you to tell me about first the documentary and what made you get into documentaries and, and how that all happened and are you surprised by the uh, results of it? Um, the documentary started nine years ago actually. It's it, it, sort of a joke. It was a mockumentary idea and uh, at the time I was, I was kind of, I think I might have been drinking with some friends and hanging out and they were talking about uh, mockumentaries were really popular and we're talking about what would be a funny uh, mockumentary idea and then somehow we came up with the idea of masturbation and and we were laughing and then it, it kind of died on the vine and then years later I was I happened to be in front of a development exec for the now defunct think film which was a pretty edgy distributor of documentaries they had done um, uh, murderball and zoo which Zoo was a, based on the true story of a zoo worker who was basically um, allowing himself to be sodomized by horses. Oh. So, and then was found dead one day. So I'm like, oh, okay, these guys obviously like very interesting, different things. Um, and and they in Sedona, Arizona. If, you, if you're not familiar with Sedona, it's 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 a, a popular retiree area, and it's it's very popular also in the new age science realm. And so this guy was being pitched everything from ideas. Of, on octogenarian yoga to um, to Indian quilt making, and it just wasn't really hitting the enthusiasm mark for like what they do. And, and so on the fly, he asked me if I had anything, and I said um, I went through the database real quick in my brain, and within about five seconds, I said, "Yeah, I have a documentary on masturbation." And his eyes lit up, and I knew I had something. Now, were you a documentary fan uh, growing up? And if you were, what were some of your favorite documentaries? Um. I I really did get, have the luxury of growing up with some great indie films that came out. And in terms of documentaries, I liked what Michael Moore was doing. I liked um, 
uh, I really like Nick Broomfield. I had seen his documentary Fetish, and it blew me away that he had done an interview with a Jewish attorney, and the whole time the guy had his back to the camera and his head in a toilet while a uh, um, basically a sex worker was like sitting on him, putting her cigarette butts out on his back, and and he was talking about his fantasies of like Nazism. <laughs> so it was it was really bizarre. And at that moment, I said, "Wow, there could be." really interesting stuff covered um, with documentary filmmaking. And I, and if I'm going to do it, I'm going to have to do something different. Now, you said it came from you guys talking around, just talking about masturbation. Because we all do it. I mean, let's get real. It's always I always crack up when I, you know, when I had a sex ed class in sixth grade, when the teacher's talking about, hey, uh, masturbation, we all do it. And, of course, the derelict kid raises his hand, hey, do you do, you do it? And, of course, the teacher has to say, yes, then we all call him a masturbator, which is just the way it is. But uh, how did you sit there and, I mean, just from taking that to fruition, I mean, I know this guy was in Sedona was nuts, but did you really think it would get made when you pitch an idea for masturbation? Well, at the time, I absolutely did. And the reason being is I started doing some research on the subject and came across this really sordid history that you people have with their own sexuality throughout history masturbation has been known as both a cure and a curse. And and I thought that was just fascinating, this most basic fundamental of sexual uh, sexual things that we do. You know, the first, basically most people lose their virginity to themselves through masturbation, and yet it's been so, there's been such a polarizing attitude around it throughout history. And then when I discovered the first African-American Surgeon General, I, I seem to recall her being fired by Bill Clinton, because she was at an AIDS conference, and her name is Dr. Jocelyn Elders, and she said we should perhaps talk about masturbation as part of sex education, and then President Clinton at the time fires her for this, or forces her to resign, basically, and um, and now she, you know he's campaigning alongside Hillary to make it even more interesting and timely. Um, it's it's really fascinating. I mean, this is the same president who was caught sticking. A cigar up as intern, so so I, I I'm I'm like this is an interesting interesting dilemma that we face here. Something so common as masturbation, yet it's so political. So you sit there, you have this idea. Now, where do you start? I mean, you sit there, okay, and as we say, masturbation is such a uh, a vast subject because everybody's done it, you know. And, and so, as as a as a documentary and it's your first documentary I guess I know you worked we talked last night I know you worked for ESPN but it was a lot different you weren't doing documentaries I'm sure when when you sit there where do you start from when you go I'm going to write and direct this documentary about masturbation I mean did you have excuse a French a master plan did you sit there and have a uh, an arc to a story or did you just sit there and go basically blind I mean how did you go into it that, that's a great question, um, and and I love to talk about this. I I actually, having been an English major, I um and and I had a lot of experience with research, having to do research papers and how you organize and 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 use libraries and and kind of organize and aggregate information. So I actually approached it that way. I went into the subject matters as if I were doing this huge term paper, except it was going to be a videofied version of it. And then, and then I, I went in and just started researching the history uh, of masturbation. 
Revolution, because it is this wacky history, no pun intended. And then, and then I started discovering, you know, okay, wow, a lot of the shame seems to stem from morality. So I said, let me take a look at it from a moral perspective. And, and, and so let me take four major religions, and I'll get representatives from all four and see what they have to say about it. And when you look at it, half of them said it was a sin, half said it wasn't. So I thought that was interesting. Historically, it was known as both the cure and a curse. That was interesting. And then politically, it's, um, you know, Dr. Joyce and Elders gets fired, and then it, I found it was actually legal to buy or sell sex toys in the state of Alabama. And so I found that being interesting. And then I discovered, well, that's, that's really weird because the, the Alabama has the loosest gun laws, and um, the, it's a $15 billion industry, sex toys. So, so I'm like, why would we be... Stopping this, and and so it just it just grew from there. Where I was studying this, you know, exploring the basic premise being why is something most everyone does so hard to talk about, and trying to explore it from a religious perspective, historical perspective, um, even media, how film and TV and music portrays it. Most music doesn't use the word masturbation. I can think of one song, "Darling Nikki," and, and the rest of them use euphemisms to talk around it. Yeah, the, the, um, the vinyls, and, uh, the vinyls was "I Touch the, Myself," and you know. Absolutely. Yeah. We interviewed Billy Steinberg, who co-wrote that with the Divinals, actually. He's in the film, and he plays an acoustic version of the song in the film. Now, you said the four religions. What were the four religions, and what were their different responses? I mean, you said two were against it, pretty much. What, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing Catholicism or, or what, what, and Judaism. What were, what, what were the religions, and what were their uh, responses? Yeah, Catholicism, Judaism, Judaism and uh, Buddhism was the, the other one, and Islam. We wanted to cover, I tried to pick the ones with the most population, so to try to get all-encompassing. I mean, I could have went with Mormons, I could have, I could have went beyond that, but, but, it, but at some point you have to figure, okay, the film's going to be only so long, and otherwise it's going to be a miniseries on masturbation, which I really, quite frankly, could have done. <laughs> well, yeah, you could have, because you know, we, HBO had real sex a while back, and that was every fetish above and beyond the, the you know, hey, look at this guy, he's banging a calf. I mean, this thing. So, so, so you sit there, you're doing your research. Now, how do you decide, how do you start shooting it? Where, where do you go in filming? Where do you go with the storyboard? Because it's, it's not like well, something you'll storyboard. Well, yeah, I had an outline. I had a treatment that I put together. And, and then in doing so, I, I outlined a, a, a list of interviewees that would fit that treatment. And, and I, I still needed to really, I had, with this treatment, in the list of interviewees and an interest interest from a distributor, I, I had some clout. You know, I had something there to kind of take to investors, but I still couldn't get producers and, ex, and investors to actually put money down. They they were very interested. They thought it was they couldn't believe it hadn't been done before, but they were still not sure how I was going to broach it. And then and I also you know with anything in this business, you're as good as what you've done, right? So even though I had plenty of experience as a director for like sports TV and and I had done I had options some screenplays and worked as a writer uh, you know I didn't do documentaries so so this was my first example at it too so it was a bit of a challenge so what I needed to do really was to put together an example um, or a trailer of what I had um, and where I was going to go with it and so that's what I did I called up some key interviews and uh, lined them up within two weeks flew a mini crew down to kind of shoot some interviews in certain key spots and I'd say the biggest best interview amongst that was uh, Dr. Joyce and Elder the first African-American Surgeon General, when she jumped on board, uh, it's like, hey, it's endorsed by a Surgeon General. <laughs> you know, can, can you not get more legitimizing than that? 
And that helped to kind of veer me away from some pornographic uh, spoof piece to something that was actually a legitimate study. So and, you, and then after that, I was able to get a lot more high-profile um, sex educators and other people involved. What was your query letter? That just cracks me up. What, what would be the query? I mean, how do you sit there and go, hey, I mean, you know, I query guests. I go, hey, this guy's been on my show. This guy's been on my show. And hey, people want to talk to themselves. But for you, it must have just been a crazy query letter because you're sitting there going, hey, uh, do you want to talk about masturbation? <laughs> it's funny you say that, too, because it was a challenge. I had to... Um, the word masturbation, which, by the way, etymologically has really sorted background, too. Uh, I mean, first of all, most etymologists don't really know what its full origins are. But one of the theories is that it stands for manas, or like hand and uh, strupare, I think, which means like to violate or to um, basically to rape or to file. And so, so the origin of the word masturbation is really refl reflective of what I'm getting at. We have this love of hate with this whole subject, it means hand rape. <laughs> so um, so I, I found it also was often in people's spam filters. So when I pitch and start asking if they'd like to be in a documentary masturbation, they wouldn't even get these emails. So I had to start coming up with creative ways to talk about it, like hence the title, self-love and, and other things. Um, as for like how that query went, I would revise that query per person. So it would sound a lot more academic if if I were approaching like some educator or academic person, you know, uh, or the Surgeon General, it would sound a little bit more overt and uh, maybe even along, along the lines of Howard Stern-esque if I was approaching like a comedian like a Janine Garofalo or, or um, Larry Flint or something like that, who both were in the film as well. So you sit there and you, and you start crying. Now, how do you sit there and put your point of, uh, your point of action when you're going to talk to these people? And it is such a, and funny, it shouldn't be a taboo subject, but it is. But when you sit there and you have people with bigger names, Janine Garofalo, Larry Flint, the Joyce Elders, how do you sit there and, and as an interviewer, how do you go about the topic? Do you just jump right into the meat or do you, you pander a little bit? Um, you know, to start with anything when I'm interviewing, I like to make sure we do like a mic check and all this by doing live interviews warm people up, get them comfortable. So I'll shoot everything, but I, the beginning questions, I always call my like, blow-off, get-to-know-you questions. So I'll just, uh, you know, I'll, I'll ask sort of light things that are easy for them to answer in the beginning, maybe joke a little bit with them, and then and then I'll get to more of the where I really want to go by the middle or, or like the end. And, um, and what was really fun is that by the end, after I had everything I wanted, every single interview, I asked them a very personal question. I asked them if they masturbated. And what, 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 and what was really fascinating is, is that these sex educators, especially the ones that that's what they do, these are high profile sex educators, whenever, no matter who you were from a comedian to a sex educator to a porn star to a politician or to a religious figure, right, I would ask that question, almost 90% of them would get very awkward. And it was it was really interesting. That was really telling as well. And I integrated that response in the film as part of it too. So you start getting all this footage and you have this footage of interviewing people. Now you gotta interweave a story. So how do you how does the movie start? Is it do you sit there and, and make it it's a history of masturbation and you insert stuff or how do you when you get because I that's what fascinates me about documentaries is people people get all this amazing footage and then they have to edit it out. How do you start as a filmmaker making a documentary and such a touchy subject? 
how do you interweave all your facts and how do you shoot that stuff? That's and that's also a really good question. The creative aspect of it. Um, I was also I'm also a jazz guitar player. I mean, I'm not a great jazz guitar. I'm a guitar player, and I've studied jazz. And um, and so I I look at it as jazz music. It's like you know, with with jazz, you kind of know your your mode or your progression, so to speak. But there's a lot of room for improvisation along the way. And that's how I look at documentary filmmaking. It's not quite like scripted filmmaking, where you have a script and you have to shoot what's on the script or something close to it. Documentary filmmaking, you have an idea or a germ of an idea, but you don't exactly tell people what to say. So they're going to bring to the table the script also. So you're really starting with a spine. And then even in the terms of like when you start going down the, the investigative road, you're going to find other paths that you may want to take. And and although you might have thought one path would get you to your destination, you might veer off completely. And that's what's really exciting, but also super challenging about documentary filmmaking. And it's also why a lot of them take so long to make, uh, because it's not so structured that, like that. With this film, we actually had a rough cut that was done. 80% of this film was done in two years. And then it lacked something. It actually, quite ironically, as a documentary on masturbation, it lacked a personal touch. And I noticed a lot of the films I like most, um, around that time I had seen, I think, Why We Fight. And I thought it was a great documentary because it went into the history and into like this sort of A plot line of societally why we fight in wars. And then it interwove personal journeys of new recruits and people that have been dealing with um, people they know or loved ones going to war, maybe not coming back. And it wove that nicely in with this whole historical outline of why we fight as a society. And I always found that the documentaries I like most have a little bit of a personal through line in addition to that A-line story, you know, that main story or subject that they're addressing. And that's what I did. With the second pass of this, it took a heck of a lot longer, another five years or so, and I brought in another editor who really was good at that, that I had worked with on another project. Uh, we were able to weave in a personal story, and that was my story, the one that I was afraid to put in this film because of the embarrassing aspects of the taboo nature of masturbation. Isn't it ironic that you sat there and you said most of your people were very awkward when they talked about masturbation and yet your story, what you were, felt awkward about, ended up being the catalyst for the film? It really was. I think part of it was when you start evaluating and doing your soul searching because this documentary kind of brooked past a very difficult time in film in general, but especially documentaries, the 2009 crash, and a lot of investors kind of flew the coop, including the original investors we had, they, they didn't actually finish the budget for this. So we raised about 80% of it, and then they kind of walked away, and I had to kind of do the rest on the side also, which also led to more time. And in doing that, you really start digging deep as an artist and saying, wait, why am I doing this? Why do I care? It's, not, it's definitely a labor of love, and no pun intended. And um, at this point, and, and I have other things I can move on to, why do I really want to dig deep and to finish this film? What's, what's, really, what's really important to me? And that's when I realized something that happened to me when I was quite much younger. Uh, when I was later middle school, or just before high school that summer, I had um, been hanging out with some neighborhood kids, and we were joking around masturbation. And somehow, in my comfort level with these kids, I just kind of admitted in joking that I did it too. I brought it very personal. And then suddenly the joke was gone and the joke was like on me. 
and they didn't even really quite, they were kind of joking around a little bit, you know, poking fun at me at the time, not admitting they do it too. And then it sort of started this little rumor. And so it got, it was really embarrassing. I, you know, I was able to make it through, but this was a moment that was very embarrassing and, and where I felt like I outcasted, like I didn't, maybe I did something they didn't do. I started questioning whether I was the only one. And this was a memory I had suppressed for many, many years. And I integrate this into the film as part of that, that personal story. And it wasn't until I discovered a couple of years back a high school student in San Diego named Matthew Burdett, who um, another student actually caught him allegedly masturbating on on his phone. So this, so basically, this other student caught this um, Matthew Burdett, you know, using his telephone, um, allegedly masturbating in a high school stall. And then he, this student posted it on Vine to shame this kid. And it it really worked. The, the Matthew Barrett was felt so isolated and, and, and embarrassed by the incident. It was such ramifications digitally, you know, with poking fun at him that on Thanksgiving night two years ago, he committed suicide. And um, this is a 14-year-old kid that, you know, was a boy, former Boy Scout, and it, it was it's a tragedy. And so as much as there's humor and, and interest in this film, this really hit home for me. Um, I, you know, many, many years earlier, I didn't have the internet to kind of put a digital scarlet letter on myself so things blow over with time but what this boy must have been going through and what, what other kids are going through now it's sex shaming on the internet which I haven't had access to and I doubt you with your generation would have even concept uh, concepted it is something that's really concerning and and the longer we perpetuate the shame and guilt around such a fundamental aspect of our sexuality especially in lieu of the you know oncoming virtual reality and other environments we're creating, I think we're going to see more of that. And that's, that's, that's something I want to prevent. Well, it's funny because you say that because the shaming, which is funny about it, it was, you know, in my generation, I'm 52, it was the person in the neighborhood, oh, yeah, she's a slut. Oh, she's a whore. Right. That, was, that was the shaming. And it was, it was like a scarlet letter. And you would sit there and go, in your, as a young male, you go, hey, uh, she puts out, let's hook up with her. And, and and it's sad, and and that was before social media, and now, as you said, this young this young guy ended up killing himself because someone talked about him masturbating, and and it's it's just sad that social media can influence, and we see it every day with with with, with sex where people you know a girl sits there and passes out, and I mean when I was in college we were at the Button in Fort Lauderdale, and a girl showed her tits, and during a wet wet t shirt contest, and she got so much shit. And she transferred. Now she, the girl probably would have had to move out of New Jersey. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it wouldn't matter where she moves because now um, everywhere she goes, they could potentially see that. They should move to Siberia, and if they have the internet, you know, they're going to know about her. So this is a real issue that's happening with people today. And and what's going to happen is either we're going to be forced to come to terms with our own sexuality and stop shaming people because we realize we're all equal. Human, and there's nothing to be ashamed of, or we're going to see more of this, which is what I hope doesn't happen. Me too, because if I could, I would just walk around with my dick hanging out all the time. I'll be honest. Jo- <laughs> Joanne cracks up. I'm always like, "Hey, look at this," and it's my dick in my hand, and it's just it's juvenile, but it makes me laugh. And that's the thing: sexuality and penises and vaginas should make us laugh. And, and, and it's such a shameful thing, but it's just funny. And, and, and that's what gets me scared that people are so uptight about balls hanging out. Balls are funny. Well, you know what? I think, honestly, I think um, we, I, I talk about this in the documentary. 
Uh, I even give an example of, and it's a mad, mad world where you got the guy slipping on the banana peel, and that's a classic joke, right? What's really funny about a human being slipping on a banana peel? I mean, if you really think about it, they could break their neck. If it was your grandma, you'd probably be like, whoa, 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 wait, are you all right? You know, like, what? it's, it's, it's kind of very, very dangerous, actually. And, and so we talk about this with some of the comedians in the film, like Janine Garofalo, and it's like, we really get to the germ of it. What's funny about it is it's, it's vulnerability. It's how we as human beings deal with something that makes us uncomfortable. And so the more we are uncomfortable with the subject matter, the more likely we're going to find humor around it. And when you talk to comedians or you talk to club owners, masturbation is fodder for most comedy. And, and so I think going past that, that, we start to wonder, okay, well, why is that really funny? And there's nothing wrong with humor. Humor is a great psychological tool to get past our, our own garbage so that we can actually talk about something. But, um, but the reality is what I hope doesn't happen is, well, masturbation is funny. I didn't want this documentary to be a joke. And that was the fine line and tone that I had to carry while creating this that also was very challenging. And um, hopefully we were able to accomplish that. So when you start editing it and you and you have all your all your footage, how do you sit there and as you said, you don't want it to be a comedy, how do you sit there and do that as you talk to the editor and you're the director? How do you make sure that you want it to be funny? Because if it's just a depressing thing about some guy whacking off in a room, you're not going to like it. How do you sit there and, and find that line between what is comedy and what is not and what makes it, as we keep saying, excuse the language, touching to someone? What, how do you find that as a director? Well, that's where you have to, it's all about timing and placement. And that's, like, um, that's the art of filmmaking. And that's when you go through it and you finesse it and where you place things. Um, it's kind of like with communication in general. If you're in a room when you're when you're talking about especially sensitive subject matter, it's it's all about time and place. You know, um, you 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 want to be sensitive to that and and what your juxtapositioning and balance that out. Um, if uh, if you do it right, then you can kind of control those um, the reactions and the emotions and, and and how people are going to feel about what they're seeing to some extent, and uh, and that's what makes me most excited that's the magic of movie making you know whether it be scripted or not is that in essence we're communicating with the audience and we're like magicians um weaving this tale and uh and making you laugh and cry and 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 feel what it's like to be human so you get it done it's all put together now what do you do with this what you have this movie it's a taboo subject it's a documentary which you know, it's not so easy to sell a documentary. What do you do? Where do you go from getting the final product? What happens to make you end up showing it at, at the man, which is one of the most historic theaters around? What are your steps to get this documentary from just a copy to getting it, you know, distributed? Yeah, it's now the TLC <laughs> theater, but it is the Chinese theater. Yeah, the formerly known as the man's and and it it is um how do you do that well i i don't know how people are continuing to do it but but how i did it was uh, i i we took it to market we took it to the can film market and uh, prior to that while i was doing it i had taken it to afm american film market and i would kind of pitch the idea around as i was developing it kind of teasing it i what i call soft selling um to distributors and and um you know producer reps and seeing who was interested and based on the 
enthusiastic reaction I was getting from a number of people. I, I knew that I was onto something and it was a value. I, like I said, prior to even doing it, I had a distributor interested. Um, and so when I actually did finally have a cut to show people and, and, and was able to follow up with some of these folks that were interested, I wound up getting three distribution offers, actually, for this, this film. And fortunately, we were able to make a decision based on that, who to go with. And we ended up with Vision Films, who is now distributing it worldwide and had successfully sold it to, I know, Sky Italia in Italy, uh, uh, Global Stat out in Brazil, and I believe a company, I can't remember the name right now, but in Israel. Um, and it's on Amazon Prime, it's on Vudu, uh, Vimeo, iTunes, so it's hitting a lot of the VOD platforms. And as far as the theatrical release, we... We sort of did that ourselves. They, our distributor doesn't really focus on theatricals, so I reached out to theaters and, and to sex museums, like the Museum of Sex, and, and any related groups. There's a huge sex-positive community uh, that's out there, and, and we started getting their support and uh, hit their you know their people online and on Twitter, and uh, that was sort of our core base support for, uh, for the film. And we sold out New York. We sold out the Chinese theater, and, uh, and then we got sponsors. Doc Johnson is... Homegrown here out in California, um, Los Angeles based. They're a, a, a famous sex toy company, a family owned business that's been in existence for, for decades. And they agreed to sponsor our screening. So they provide us with free vibrators and sex toys for, um, for everyone that attends the event, uh, often which retails more than the ticket itself. And that doesn't hurt. And then uh, a rabbit company came in last minute too to give us some real high end product for our special giveaways. So it was one heck of a Good vibration screening, I can say. <laughs> well, here's the deal, though. But, okay, uh, so 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 you get it in the Chinese theater, which these days, I mean, honestly, I live in Burbank. Me and Joanne have gone to movies where it's like it's a matinee. There's six people. You know, my friend Alex Scooby just sent a picture of him and his kids were in town. They were still the Conjuring too. They're the only ones in the theater. You get the the Chinese theater. It's a documentary, which most people don't want to see a documentary. How do you get the crowd there? Are a lot of them your friends, or was there just some buzz going around about it? Both. We start with our friends, and having worked in biz now and been do, doing entertainment, and we, we, we have some friends in decent places, you know, and that doesn't hurt. But but a lot of it has to do with um, with the buzz that the distributor also helped create, too. I mean, they had a publicist on it when we released on VOD in February, and we were written up in Newsweek, New York Magazine, Boston Globe, Playboy Radio did an interview with me, and the, my, the co-producer, Denise Acosta. Um, we've been written up all around the world. GQ Mexico did an article on us. Um, one of the biggest papers in, in Brazil did an article on us, uh, Wire Italy. So, so word starts getting around. People know of our film. And then the other thing is you tap into the, the like I tapped into everything from like swingers clubs to, um, to sex positive communities online to, to naughty LA and, and how all these groups kind of promote us and uh, put it out to their mailing lists. And, um, and, then, and then drop the fact that you're giving free sex toys and show some photos of it. That doesn't hurt either. Um, we've got, now we've got a crowd and we create a buzz. Uh, to top it off, it is the world's first feature documentary on the subject, and people are very curious. So, uh, so it's it's not like every day. I mean, I've seen a ton of global warming documentaries and 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 um, you know, and documentaries on the sex trade and other things. There's like these kind of go-to documentaries that everyone seems to be pumped about and, and 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 doing. And there's always like another one every month. But I've never in the history seen a feature documentary on masturbation. So that doesn't hurt either. So you're you're at the Chinese theater, it's sold out. You're the director. 
what's going through your mind and are you are you have any idea what to expect of course you know it's good because you you put it together and you wouldn't put shit together because i met you you're you're a classy guy and there you know there's many people who put shit together all the time but you you seem to have a pride in your work as a director there's a packed house they're expecting something they got their rabbits. They got their double pronged dildos. They got all the shit out. They're probably swinging this stuff around like it's a goddamn hoot nanny. What do you do as a what is going through your mind? And and are there certain keys in the movie where you go, okay, this should get a laugh. And if, if it didn't get a laugh, what went through your mind? It's funny. I didn't even sit through the movie. I had to give up my seat because there was like forty people trying to get in. And so uh, to me, I. I I really wanted everyone in. I felt really badly having to turn people away, even though I was very happy we we oversold. I mean, well, not oversold, but we had that much interest. Um, and and so I would sneak in and catch some of the laughs and see that they were hitting in all the key spots. It seemed like I this is I had already seen it like seven times, having screened it in New York twice and Las Vegas, San Francisco, and then I also did a, a mini little um, college circuit, you know, in, in University of Wisconsin, Arizona State University, and. Uh, Eastern Michigan University, which they all invited us, me out to fly out and, and, and do a Q&A. So I had already kind of seen this evolve, and, and what I'm most excited by is showing people how good it is. I'm proud of how good this film is, and for whatever reason, uh, maybe some of the reasons we kind of touched upon, you know, people, there's so much crap out there, and people just, I think they think, oh, it's funny, and it's interesting, and subject-wise, but maybe they think it's just some kind of porn or eye candy or something, but they do not get the depth and breadth of what's been put into this film. So everyone, nearly everyone, actually everyone, everyone that I've spoken to, I love to see the reaction of awe when they see this film and think, I never expected that. And every and I really learned something. And this blew me away. And that's the excitement I get because I'm confident that's what's going to happen now. And I just can't wait. There's this anticipation when I see this crowd because, because it is so challenging getting butts and seats. You have to go through lots of ways because there's so much white noise out there. So once you get that audience in there, I'm excited that what they're going to get is more than what they expect. And and, um, and that's the most satisfying thing. I mean, I have Ron Jeremy waiting in the aisle coming in, you know, sitting with like 12 other folks on the stairs on the side, like just trying to watch this film. And that was, that was, that was exciting. Did Jeremy show up last night? Did who? Did Ron show up to Max's party? Oh, I didn't see him there. Okay, he usually shows up. So, okay, so, yeah. so, so you have a documentary on your belt, and now most people, when they do a documentary, because a documentarian is, is, is a very um, cerebral and select filmmaker because, as you say, it, you, you are dealing with footage, you are dealing with feelings, you are pushing a button. You mentioned Michael Moore. I, Michael Moore, I think, is somewhat of a propagandist. But he's great at what he does. Morgan Spurlocker is great at what he does. Even Anthony Bourdain is somewhat of a documentarian. So you're doing the documentary. Uh, the, you get this thing done, and, and then you, you you start a horror movie. How did you How did you go from directing docu a documentary about masturbation to a horror movie? That's that's, that's funny you asked that. Um, it didn't go that way. Like okay. in uh, I started the whole. Or a concept as a web show about three and a half, four years ago. And I was still knee deep in the documentary trying to figure out how I was going to get this finished. So, you know, as an artist, if I, I were to wait and go from start to finish on one project and then sequentially follow with another one, 
it, it would, I'd probably die before I finished three or four projects. So, so I need to continue and, and, and really project manage myself and my time and bounce back and forth. And sometimes that really helps creatively too to get your mind off of one, one thing when you're trying to solve an issue and then go on to something else. So, um, so that's, that's the truth is it wasn't like right away. I, it happened to line up that they both finished around the same year. Um, which is in some ways fortuitous because I'm able to piggyback off the, even though it's totally different films, I'm able to piggyback to some extent off the uh, publicity I'm getting on one for the other. Um, but but as far as, you know, I did also, another reason why I think that's advantageous is managers and agents and audiences themselves love to pigeonhole people so that it's like, okay, Michael Moore's a document filmmaker he can't like I, I, I'd imagine they would probably give him a hard time with raising finance for a romantic comedy if he wanted to do one you know it's just it's just not um, how they see him and how they see his brand but human beings are more complex than brands even corporations have the option of, of like Disney could go buy Miramax and release Pulp Fiction but yet be Disney and release Disney movies well human beings need that flexibility too and uh, Shel Silverstein who I love as a children's writer, also wrote for Playboy. So I think, you know, as an adult, I like and I'm fascinated by topics that are taboo and where we draw, the, you know, the line between what is appropriate and what is inappropriate. And, and I like sex. But I also am a someone who likes horror and likes comedy and likes scripted filmmaking and always have. So in this case, um, if there's any continuity, I would say I'm a genre buster. Like I, I tend to take things that we've seen a lot of and do something very original with it. So you've never quite seen a documentary on masturbation, and you've never quite seen a comedy horror with a live cat in it that features more horror icons than any movie in history either, like Hell's Kitty. Now explain explain the whole concept of the movie, and then first of all, and explain how you got the goddamn cat to act, because I had cats, and they would just sit there, they'd shit, and they'd piss, and they'd run away from me. How did you come up with the idea for this? And tell my listeners what the movie's about. Hell's Kitty started... At- as a web show, um, it was my my attempt to kind of keep relevant as a director because I saw a lot of web series being the way, and that's clearly you know being into technology. I see that's where we're going in terms of entertainment. So I wanted to stay relevant, and I was kind of tossing around the idea with my um, co-producing partner Denise, who actually originally came in as a roommate when she was going to LA Film School, and Denise was privileged to see me trying to date women in. Los Angeles with a cat that was very possessive of me, and all all the horrors that ensued as a result of that. And um, and for her it was quite comic, and to some extent it was for me too, although not for some of these women. And so so we were like, you know what, we want to do a web show, and this is funny and interesting and relevant and real and comes from a real experience. Let's you know do something about Hell's Kitty, and that's and that's really how. It started. I, it was based on my real life experiences as a writer in Los Angeles, trying to date women in LA with my cat named Angel, who was extremely possessive of me. And then from the, the web show, which got more popularity and won some, won award, and um, we made a comic book, and then eventually the feature film, which is what we finished this year. So, what do you do as a you know, as a director? And it's 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 something close to your heart because it, it's your cat. And you know, be honest, you know. Cats are like our children at time. How do you go about casting the movie? And then, and was it your cat that was in the movie, or whose cat was in the movie? And how do you cast a cat? And how do you get the compatibility between a cat and an actor? 
Well, that, that's, that's why I had to act in it. I mean, I have acted in the past, but uh, mostly studied acting so I could be a better writer and director, to be honest. But, um, but I do find it entertaining if it's a really cool character. I'm just not one to want to go shop myself around to any project that's out there. But in this case, um, one of the things I never did and I never wanted to do was act in something I directed because directing is, can be very cerebral and acting is very emotional. And often when you get in your head as an actor, you're probably showing that as a bad actor. So it's super challenging. I don't get how people successfully do both um, or why they didn't even want to. But in this case, um, because it was based on my real cat and based so much on real experiences, there was a no-brainer that I needed to use the real cat because she literally, if you put any female near me, she would react a certain way. So she wasn't acting. She was being herself. And that's how you cast the cat. And as far as um, myself, I, that was so much of a reaction. I had such a report with my cat. There was no other actor that could do that. My cat would have scratched them apart. So there was no way, from a legal perspective and a creative perspective, I could ever have anyone else act with that cat. Um, and, uh, but this cat was, would, would totally react on the spot you know, with that jealousy she had in her. So, so that's how I came to act in it with my cat. <laughs> Now, how did you sit there? I mean, you, you can't say cut to a cat. You might say, get out of here. But how did it, I mean, was the cat a good actor? I mean, that sounds so stupid and weird, but was the cat a good actor? And was was it nailing scenes? And, and how, as a director, do you sit there and, and look at a cat and say, hey, man, you nailed that? It's super challenging. At first, it was almost magical how she nailed it, to be honest. Like it, it would be, it would be moments like where the first pilot episode. If you go to hellskitty.com and watch it, there's a scene where the cat actually, you know, scratches this actress, who, by the way, was someone I dated. <laughs> I went on some dates with this girl, Lisa, who was an actress. I named her Lisa in the story too, and um, and she met the cat and had a similar reaction, and we kind of just reenacted that, but with a lot more blood and a lot more drama and horror. Um, and so, so basically, she, you know, we positioned her where she liked to be and kind of used the real furniture and the real location where I lived. Uh, this made it easier because I was able to store equipment there. I didn't have a lot of company moves. Um, the cat was comfortable in its environment. Uh, we were able to pre-light and set up shots and take still photos for, like, um, for like make, knowing where we were going to go with the camera when we are hitting the set. So that would save us time. Um, and then, then also the cat. That would have its comfort areas where I knew it would do certain things, you know, and react certain ways. And it would. And But sometimes that didn't work. I mean, believe me, it was super challenging. Like, sometimes she would, knowing when to feed her and not to feed her. You know, if you fed her too much as a treat, she'd get settled and she'd start getting nappy and lay in one spot. So we're like, okay, well, we want her in this spot. Let's do this. Let's time it out. We feed her at this time and then we have her nap here, shoot all that stuff now. And then she's going to get hungry again now and we'll do something with that, you know. So we'd work around the cat. <laughs> often as a crew and time that out in the production schedule um, but what was most magical is when she would just hit that mark literally we would say we need her on this spot we'll frame and kind of give or take you know for that framing and she would suddenly just do it she would like she, two takes or whatever she wouldn't be there in rehearsal then all of a sudden we're like let's just shoot it anyway we'll pop it in later as an insert she would suddenly in a three shot take her mark right at the key moment and, and then it was almost as if she really was possessed. It was like she was alive. She knew exactly what was going on, and the whole crowd, the whole crew afterwards would be clapping. It was, it was, it was sensational. Now, the question my listeners want me to ask is: Did the cat have a trailer? 
<laughs> no, the cat had my bed <laughs> and the bedroom, and, and that's where we put the cat, and um, and it, it was great. I mean, occasionally we would have a shoot in there, and that would really you know piss her off. And then we'd have to move her to like the living room and and keep a parry around her. But uh, but no, she was she's a bit of a prima donna, but not that bad. Where she actually needed a trailer, she liked the bedroom, and uh, we'd confine her in there. And uh, on more than one occasion. <laughs> She'd let the crew know she wasn't happy they were in there, and she did it by the stench of what she would drop in her oh. litter box. <laughs> <laughs> and then literally the whole crew would be complaining, and some poor PA would have to go dump that. <laughs> it was uh, it was tremendous, and that actually led to an episode, uh, an exorcism, a mock exorcism, where the Pazuzu statue from the Exorcist appears as a turd in the litter box that glows. Um, and is used against one of the priests. <laughs> now, now, what made you decide to bring it from a series to a movie? And was it, it was very was was it a hard road? That was deliberate. I actually realized, based on Sticky and other projects, how long projects take sometimes to get off from start to finish. So I wanted to figure out how to reskin it. I wanted to figure out how to leverage the production of the web show and reskin it so I can sell it out as other things and maximize my audience. So um, while web shows don't necessarily make much money, if anything, right now, although that's going to be changing, I hope, um, movies still make some money, you know. So so I'm like, well, let me see if I can kind of get a way to do it as a web show, do it as a movie, and then pitch it as a TV show concept, which is what eventually I'd like to do and, um, with it. And so I wrote it in a way where it with a little bit of cutting here and there, it would piece together and I could reskin it as a feature film. So now it's it's done, the, the features in the can? Features in the can. Um, I brought in an editing friend, an Emmy award-winning editing friend who used to direct at ESPN as well, and Gustavo Sampaio, and he helped me to, um, to really cut it in the shape. Um, but we basically pieced together a lot of episodes from the series. Now, how did Cut how- out a lot that couldn't make the cut because we just couldn't find so and, and and what we did we we never released the last three episodes of the web show. So it's almost like showing you two thirds of a movie and never showing you the last third, the last act. And so that, in a sense, functions as a big teaser for this movie. And we have this built-in audience. And now we piece that, that last part of the web series to the movie and cut it together. Cut out a lot in the middle so that we have ninety-seven minutes of feature film. Whereas if I were to release the whole web series, we'd be talking probably, you know, over 200, maybe 300 minutes of footage. Um, so in and of itself, they kind of stand as their own. So if you like the movie, you want to go see the web show so you can see all the extra parts that didn't make the cut um, and what that means to explore the universe. If you like the web show, well, you've got to see the ending so, and figure out the final twists and the final act. So it's it's kind of a unique way of developing an audience and, and releasing content. Now, how does a guy who was working at ESPN end up in Hollywood? And how did you get the job at ESPN? Uh, I always knew I wanted to be a filmmaker, at least since I was young. I, I mean, I loved music growing up, and I was a musician, and I loved writing. And I love both so much that uh, my dad was always like, you got to stay focused with one thing, even though I don't believe that's correct, especially now. But um, so I was looking for a way I can kind of do both. And filmmaking seemed like the logical way to marry music and writing. I was able to write scripts, create a world, 
and then I can actually make it happen and, and integrate my friends who are musicians or all actors and writers into my into the artwork work in that world, and then uh, create cool music for it that wasn't stuck to like one style as a band. You know, like I could go eclectic or you know to match the scenes and what what it needed. So um, so that was exciting. And that said, so I knew I wanted this. So in college, I, I worked for a, as an intern, a paid intern for a PBS branch in college. I went to Arizona State University and worked for Channel 8KAT, which was a PBS branch there. And so when I graduated college, I also spoke Italian and Spanish, and I had this background working for TV. Um, so I, kept, I was like, look, I went to high school in Bristol, Connecticut. That's the home of ESPN. Let me try to get a job at ESPN. And I tried, but I never even got a phone call back. I was an honors graduate. I had I spoke several languages. Um, I had production, real life production experience, and I could not get a job even as like a production assistant. And so then I, I started doing different odd jobs, you know, mostly as like a temp worker. And through Kelly Temp Services, I, I the, the girl knew my background and what I had done. She said, you know, I have this unique opportunity. It might be a little below your pay scale here, but I wanted to see if you were interested. And and I said, what is it? She goes, um, it's in the HR department for just a day. You'd be stuffing envelopes at ESPN. And I said, give it to me. So I went in there. I took this job for like minimum wage, stuffing envelopes at ESPN um, for a day. And I talked to the woman I was working with. And I'm like, look, you know, I gave her the pitch I gave you. I'm like, I'm an honors graduate, speak several languages, which has got like two years of production experience under my belt. Like how, and I went to high school in Bristol. Like, why can't I get a job here at ESPN? And she said, honestly, you didn't hear this from me, but you got to know someone. <laughs> so I looked at her and said, well, I know you. <laughs> and so she laughed and said, well, okay, um, do you have a resume? And I go, yeah, I actually happen to have one right here. And I pulled it out, handed it to her, and two days later I get a call. And so you start directing shows for ESPN, but as you said last night to me, the producers are actually the directors. So what, what, what did it, how did it hone your directing skills and to end up doing the documentary you did and doing the, the feature you're doing, how did it help? Well, ESPN was in, in, an interesting place to work. I mean, I, I started as a production assistant in their international research, and that was mainly because I did speak Spanish and Italian, but they really needed someone who was bilingual in that area. I was doing a lot of their soccer shows and then some of their X game shows. And we would take satellite feed in and be in a studio and, and then like present it to, um, to South America and other countries. Um, but, but basically, um, at, you know, in research, I was, I, I wanted to do more. I wanted to direct. Right. So, um, so within six months, having the skills I had, I was able to kind of move my way into where I wanted to be. And I was, I was working as an associate director for them. And, um, and that was great. And I got a pay raise and all that came with it. And, um, and then, you know, having worked doing that for, I think I've been there about a year or two years altogether. I, I was getting bored because, I noticed that directors in TV weren't quite like directors in film. They were more like, the producers in TV were more like that. They were the ones that called the shots. They were like, like the directors were more like the technical liaison. You know, they worked in between the producers, what they wanted, their vision, and they worked with the technical team or the, or, or the guys in the studio to make it happen. But, um, but the, what I really wanted to do in TV world would be produce. So I was kind of stuck where I was at and then Disney wound up buying ESPN and it was like really challenging to move around effectively without waiting your turn and so I just quit and then after quitting I used the ESPN on my resume to get another kind of projects and I started doing a lot of promotional spots for Madison Square Garden um, started my own production company um, 
and then did some projects for other companies as well. I wound up for a while, too, doing a little bit of journalism, a little bit of um, IT training, uh, training videos for a lot of companies, um, thinking I was wasting my time still trying to get back in the film, doing that on the side, but starting to make really big money in the IT world. And then it wasn't until like leapfrog to like kind of now where I have my own business, Smart Media, that basically does entertaining IT training for major corporations and pays a lot of my bills. Um, uh, and and I'm doing the the filmmaking and what I love, kind of um, in addition, you know, at the same time, and that I'm able to kind of really sustain myself and and where we're going with technology, really driving innovation and entertainment. I think I'm in a perfect place. Now, what made you come out to LA? What was there a defining moment, or was it just something? As you said, you were doing the IT stuff. Was it a job that brought you out? That actually coming to LA has made you enhance your career and come out with the documentary and, and do the web series. You can do the movie. What made you come out here? I waited as long as I could because I didn't want to be that guy that was wanted to be an actor or a filmmaker, director, or writer. I, I didn't want to be one of the million people that come out here to try to make it. I wanted to come out here with something under on my plate already. So I did already have the. Uh, SPM background, which was something, but I still wanted to have some projects lined up, so I waited as long as I could, and then when I got to the point where I, I had met my editor, the first editor, and my original producing partner on Sticky in, at the Sedona Film Festival, uh, and I had been living in Arizona, um, it kind of, I kind of went to Arizona and then here, and, and it started because I, I got a gig directing um, uh, infomercials and, and, uh, uh, in Palm Springs, and I didn't want to quite move to Palm Springs, so I moved to where I... I knew I had family, and that was Arizona because I had gone to school out there. And I did that gig and made some pretty good money. And then, um, and then from Arizona, took some journalism jobs, and that's where I started the sticky. I started from from Arizona actually. And then I was working with an editor though and producing partner who lived in Silver Lake out in um, L.A. So we I go back and forth. And eventually, when we got to the point where we were near finished with that, I, I, I was like, okay. Let me come out to L.A. I think it's time. I got a project under my belt. It's getting to the point where I can't keep going back and forth. And uh, and, and that's when I started developing Hell's Kitty. And the, the doc actually wasn't as close to finish as I thought because of the issues we had with finance and with the whole market. And uh, I wanted to integrate my personal story. So I spent the time, once I moved to L.A., working on finishing Sticky, the documentary, and then finishing, starting this new project Hell's Kitty and it's been great I love LA I love living out here I, I, I met you at a random party I, I meet people all the time in the business and now that I have these two films coming out this year it's great to let people know um, that I've got stuff going on isn't it great and that's the one thing I love about LA you know you go to a party and uh, and then you, you just meet people and, and that's what's that's what's amazing about LA you know you, you can be somewhere I had a guest named Eric Palladino who was on ER I'm walking home from a bar I'm a little buzzed Joanne's making some chili. I go, hey, you know what? Onion rings will be good. So I stop at the Foster's Freeze right in Burbank. I look at the guy. I go, you look familiar. Are you an actor? And he goes, yeah. And I go, all right. I give him my card. And we start talking. And I tell him who's been on my show. And next thing you know, I'm talking to his one kid's wearing my hat. And two days later, he's in the studio. That's what's great about L.A. And, that, and, and that's so funny that you have to be out here or you have to be in New York to make shit happen because... There's some people I know who aren't out here, and they've made stuff happen. But you really, it's you can meet anywhere, anytime, anyone. I I agree. That's definitely a value in LA. That being said, um, I liked where I was before I got my finance because 
because when I was living in Arizona, like I was a big fish in a little in a small pond. So I'm competing with a lot less folks for finance. Right. So I felt like you know being able to raise the money and get that, I was better almost not being in LA, especially for a new filmmaker. You know, who was untested in docs or untested in horror, or whatever. Like I felt like that was like the place to do it. But then once you've kind of got a little something under your belt, I think it's perfect to move to L.A. because now you stand out, you know, amongst the, all the people trying to get things going on. Um, and I, personally, I think it just gives you a little bit of a leg up. And then you can. So so that's been my philosophy. But but that being said, hey, man, if I would have moved here 10 years ago, maybe I'd be way further along. Who knows? Because it is so random. It's like shoots and ladders. You know, it's here. It's like you find somebody that's some big producer and they have the right astrological sign as you and. The next thing you know, you're working together. You know? Exactly. Now, now, but, now, um, now, how'd you come up with the title for Sticky? Which one? Sticky. Sticky. Okay, Sticky. Well, I, I um, you know, I, 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 I wanted a title that I like titles that serve as sort of um, a double entendre, you know. And um, and in the case of Sticky, um, the subject matter is literally and figuratively sticky. Um, it's it's uh, you know, you think of like the sticky fingers, you know. Uh, when, a, when a person's masturbating, male or female, it could get sticky. But also, the subject matter is very sticky. It's, um, it's uh, you know, when, you, when you, you have the two prostate cancer studies that I put in the film, the one that was done in Philadelphia said that masturbation could prevent cancer, prostate cancer in men, while the ca- study that was done after that um, in Cambridge said it actually could cause it. So, you know, you got that plus half the major religion saying it's a sin, the other half saying it's not. Uh, um, historically, it was both a cure at one point for, for women for hysteria, and then it was a curse. You know, um, you start saying, "Okay, this is a truly a sticky subject." Um, and then, stickiest self love story came out of um, battles with my distributor. They wanted to call it uh, "masturbation," a sticky subject, and I was like, "No way are we using masturbation in the right. title because it that scares people off." Kill us! I, I told. Yeah, I, it turns them off, and I told them, "I go, I, I might as well call it hand rape." You know, it's going to go really far. Um, and then especially knowing that masturbation gets put in everyone's spam filter. I mean, so I wanted to play with the idea of the romantic comedy because I feel like this whole film, once you see it, you're going to really well know that, that masturbation is sort of a romantic comedy we have with ourselves. And so I was going for those red and black and white colors and then Sticky a Self-Love Story was um, a more palpable title and a more positive title. It's been polarizing, though. That word sticky itself, though it sticks, that also offends some people. There are some people that said they, they, they love everything about the movie, but they don't like that word sticky. Well, you know what? Screw um, them. It's like screw them. Because you know, it's a great title. And you know what? We're, we're, we're almost out of town, uh, out of time. Uh, do me a favor. Uh, see, time flies, huh? It's been an hour. You didn't even know that. Uh, give all your yeah. info so people can follow you and give all the websites and all that stuff. Um, sticky the movie, Sticky a Self Love Story can be found on stickythemovie.com. That's S T I C K Y T H E M O V I E.com. That's where all our links to VOD and buying options are and social media. And Hell's Kitty, the comedy horror movie now, it can be found along with the web shows on hellskitty.com. That's H E L L S K I T T Y.com. And we also have. Of Hell's Kitty. If you search Hell's Kitty Comics on Amazon, you'll find a few of our comic books as well. Cool. And what's your what's your personal Twitter? Nicholas Tana. So, so people, Nicholas with an H and I C H O L S, and uh, Tana, which is one N T A N A. So people follow Nicholas. Follow me at Cooper Talk. I'm at Cooper Talk. Also go to my website CooperTalk.net. Five hundred and twenty-eight episodes. I have five in the can. I got to put up. 
uh, email me, Cooper, coopertalk.net. Ask me who you want to see. I got Jay Carnes, who played Dutch on uh, on uh, The Shield next week. Instagram, Words with Friends, Cooper Talk one Find me on Stitcher, iTunes, Cooper Talk. And don't forget my uh, my cookbook at www.stopthesalt.com. So check out Nicholas. Check out his movies. Check out Masturbation Sticky, because, you know, we all do it. And uh, I want to thank you for listening. Steve Cooper, I'm only as hip as my guest. You guys have a great day.